Michael Demaray said about uh, love when he previewed the Romans uh, 13 passage that we're going to read here in just a second. Um, yeah, Paul really does hit us over the hammer with love. And we're going to talk about that and some other things here during the homily. I'm going to read the passage uh, for you. It's a uh, second lesson right here in your liturgy. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is already the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when, we became, than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then throw off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk decently as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in illicit sex and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. God's people said, thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we use the Apostles' Creed to confess our faith, which we do at Grace many, many times, Recently, we've been using the Belhar uh, Confession happily uh, as part of our liturgy in order to address issues of our day in a thoughtful and biblical way. Um, but the words of the Apostles' Creed are familiar to many of us. Um, and when we say, when we confess our faith using the Apostles' Creed, um, we say not only that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we also say that we believe in the church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. Now, so one thing to get your mind around, okay, believing in God, all right? Another thing to get your mind around what it means to believe in the church, of course, it's not the same kind of object of belief that's a fair point but what the authors of the creed are doing is they're suggesting that that the church the communion of saints when the church and the communion of saints are functioning properly they are a community or it is a community and it is a communion which you can put your trust in you can rest in and see it as safe space for you. Safe space to hear God, to hear God through each other, and to live out the love of God with each other. It's solid. It's there for you, and you are there for it, or rather, you are there for each other. And not surprisingly, right after, say, 
I believe in the church, communion of saints, comes this line, and I believe in the forgiveness of sins. It's not surprising that that comes afterward, uh, believing in the church and the communion of saints, because in order for the church and the communion of saints to function properly, like we said earlier, there must be a commitment to an utmost confidence in that we are forgiven sinners who continue to forgive each other. Now I begin the homily in this way this morning because we have two texts in front of us this morning that assume that the Christians in the first century to whom Matthew, the first lesson, right, and Rome and, 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 and uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, the assumption there is that the Christians that are hearing these texts read to them in worship, the Gospel of Matthew, the Epistle to the Romans, the assumption is they realize that their life together in the church community is nothing less than an extension of God's love at work in the world. This community, the, the community that Jesus is is uh, calling forth around himself the risen Lord Jesus Christ who's ascended and now is dispersed throughout the world through the gift of the Holy Spirit. This community is sturdy and exists for the well-being of its people, its members, and it exists for the well-being of the world. It is a community like no other. Now, I say all that because I fear that a lot of times when we read scripture, we read it as if it is a dictum that's given to us as individual people. And that's like it, full stop, right? But the assumption here is that all these words, right? The Gospel of Matthew, interestingly, as, as Lee pointed out in her homily recently, and I think as someone else did as well, Tony, when he preached recently. Matthew is the only gospel writer who actually uses the word church. He uses it two or three times, and uh, that's an interesting thing, right? Um, he is self-aware that he is writing to a group of people, not just individuals, but a group of people who are all living and pulling in the same direction, and the same with Paul's letter to the church at Rome. You know, none of what he's writing in the epistle to the Romans, and especially in this portion of Romans from like around chapter 12 through the end of the epistle, none of that makes sense unless you think about it as being written to a group of people who've all agreed to live in the same way with each other. So that's why I reached back for like a wide-angle introduction to this homily where I'm going to take up a little bit of Matthew and a little bit of Romans, I reach back to the creed because the early Christians are quite aware um, that, you know, in fact, one of the, I'm told by scholars who actually know these things, that the earliest version of the Apostles' Creed leaves out the word in. That I believe not in the church, but I believe the church. So in other words, the church is a place where I expect to hear the truth about me, I expect to hear the truth about God, and I expect to hear the truth about how to live with my fellow Christians and people in the community in a way that bears witness to 
the cruciform life of Christ and the hope of the gospel. You know, Luke Timothy Johnson, when he reflects on those, that portion of the creed in his little book, which is a really great book on the creed, uh, Luke Timothy Johnson puts it this way, the church is in a real sense the continuation of the incarnation. Now just stop there for just a second. That's like a mic drop moment, right? The church continuation of the incarnation. I mean, when you came here and you're trying to figure out where the heck to park this morning, when you logged on to Zoom this morning and you thought, wow, I really hope I can hear, you know, when we do all those little housekeeping things to actually show up here, it's worth it because you're showing up to the continuation of the incarnation of Jesus. Big stuff. It's not an overstatement. The church, in a real sense, the continuation of the incarnation, the embodied presence of the resurrected Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is the laboratory for communal life before God, the model that the world can see as the basis for its own rebirth. Laboratory for communal life before God. An invitation for the whole world to look and see what kind of society God can make when God is in charge and when people listen by the mercies and grace of God. Someone who will remain nameless told me that in their first week of chemistry, um, they realized that one of their lab partners was a little distracted and the other one was uh, not risk averse. And they were thinking, this not maybe you know, not a great situation for lab partners, right? <laughs> and so, so if the church is the laboratory for, <laughs> for the world to look and see what it's like uh, to live in the power of the gospel, then wow, thankfully uh, that laboratory is a place where mistakes can be made and are made all the time. And thankfully, that laboratory is a place where people believe the church, they believe the communion of saints, and really lean into belief in the forgiveness of sins. Because that's what makes the laboratory credible. Not our perfect obedience, but Christ's perfect love and Christ's dwelling with us in such a way that makes us people who ask forgiveness, receive forgiveness, demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. That's what it's all about. I realize I just ad-libbed like two paragraphs, um, but I am going to just read this one because I think it's maybe a little bit more well-formulated than what I just ad-libbed. The laboratory of communal life before God, the model that the world can see as a basis for its own rebirth. Um, how is the church a model of communal life before God? By being a community where love is the reason for everything. Where love, that hammer that Michael Demeray mentioned earlier, love is the reason for everything. A community where members understand that even when they hurt each other, that that's an opportunity for reconciliation instead of estrangement. Now, I want to unpack these ideas a little bit. First, a community where love is the reason for everything. That's another way of saying what Paul is writing to the church at Rome. 
when he says that every bit of the Old Testament law, every bit of it, and in particular in these examples, uh, every bit of it that has to do with how people treat each other, every bit of it can be summed up by loving one's neighbor. It's an echo, right, of what Jesus himself says about love being the greatest commandment. And it is a lifeline, a lifeline for us when we find ourselves being tempted to allow selfishness, greed, fear, lust, what have you, to to define our relationships to other people. I say lifeline because we know the difference between patterns of thinking, feeling, and being that lead us into human flourishing. We know the difference between those, and we know the difference innately as human beings made in God's image between those patterns and patterns that lead us into the opposite direction, away from human flourishing. For example... Participating in in Jesus' self-giving love enables us in a moment like this in Chicago to organize our lives on certain occasions to make room to help feed migrant people. When we do that, that feels like being connected to Jesus' life-giving and self-giving love thinking that they are someone else's problem and leaving it at that, that doesn't feel like love. In fact, that feels like harming the neighbor. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism, when the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, which is one of the standards of faith that that, um, I take vows uh, to uphold as a minister in the Reformed Church in America, guides our our teaching of our our group, I love how the Heidelberg interacts with the relationship between love being the fulfillment of the law and the actual Ten Commandments. When the Heidelberg is, is dealing with the commandment about murder, which Paul touches on here, um, the question asked is, is it enough then that we not murder our neighbor in any such way? Is that enough? <laughs> like most people would be like, yeah, that's really good, okay? Uh, But the answer to Heidelberg is no, that's not enough. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them. To protect them from harm as much as we can. And to do good even to our enemies. So again, what Paul is saying to the church at Rome and through them to us is that the church community is a community like no other. It's a community where love is the reason for everything and love is the reason, which I love about the way the Heidelberg deals with, love is the reason behind everything too, behind everything. One New Testament scholar has put it this way, and this is a mishmash of one New Testament scholar quoting his mentor, so I just decided I was going to conflate and paraphrase the whole thing, but I'm going to give credit where credit is due. This is not me, this is me paraphrasing from two other people, but here we go. I'll put it in quotes. The church, when it functions properly, 
is the place where we breathe the air of Christ. I've been giving you challenges for your refrigerator lately, right? And amazingly, people have taken me up on it. They've sent me emails and text messages and said, hey, I did put that on my refrigerator. I'm glad I did. Well, here's one you might want to put on your refrigerator. The church is where we breathe the air of Christ when it's functioning properly. Christ becomes the atmosphere in which we live. It's not just a state of peace, but a dynamic equilibrium because in this atmosphere there's a flow of unbroken activity. The unbroken activity comes from the Holy Spirit's presence with us and provides a constant maintenance of relation and growth as we give into each other's lives and receive from each other so that we advance in trust and confidence with one another and God. The slogan of the church is, is um, not without the other. There's no I without a you, no I without a we. Fullness of life is necessarily a collaborative thing. And this is because the community of the church is the body of Christ. Not a metaphor, right? It is a metaphor, but it's actually a real metaphor. When Paul says the church is the body of Christ, means what he says. Related to everything we're talking about this morning, none of this makes sense unless we believe that the church community, that dynamic equilibrium of unbroken activity through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, which the Holy Spirit makes us gifts to each other, where we belong to each other, None of this makes sense unless you think that is true of the church. It's because the community is in the shape of Jesus' self-giving love that we're able to breathe the air of Christ. And it's a community where we're able to learn things that the spirit of our age is not going to teach us. The example I gave above about how to respond to the migrant crisis, how our church is, is responding to the migrant crisis by gathering together, pooling resources, making meals, delivering them. That's one example of how the Spirit teaches us how to put this love in action to fulfill the law. It's a more general example, but has become particular in our midst. But Paul here gives another couple of examples, right? Uh, take covetousness, for instance. The church community, that's the place where we learn and then are reminded perpetually that covetousness is an addiction that makes one distracted, perpetually dissatisfied and unable to be happy for anyone else's successes. It does not feel like human flourishing. It feels like the opposite of human flourishing. And the church community is where we learn and are reminded that the commitment of lifelong partnership, marriage, is about much more than a person being pleased on their own terms. But it is, as Paul explains to another church he writes to, a mysterious portrait of Christ's love for the church. And if you're not married and you hear that passage, um, there's analogies there for you regarding how Christ's love applies to all our friendships and all of our relationships. And finally, because the community is in the shape of Jesus' self-giving love, where we breathe the air of Christ, the church is a place where we learn 
that forgiving one another is the only way to live into human flourishing. And this is because wanting to forgive is nothing less than wanting to share in God's very character. Now I'm going to leave the discussion of forgiveness and reconciliation to next week because as I was looking at this, I realized I had too much to do today and I also realized that the Gospel of Matthew reading next week is a continuation and so the thoughts next week kind of flow from the thoughts this week. Um, but I will leave you with this question to ponder, and I'll ask myself the same. I won't ask you to do anything that I won't ask myself to do, okay? Uh, maybe in the week that separates this Sunday and next, you might ask yourself, with regard to relationships with other people, do you see them as relationships that belong to God, and therefore you're required to want reconciliation when something goes wrong? Or do you see them like the spirit of our age sees them as uh, more disposable, more discardable when they're inconvenient, when they become difficult? It's a question for all of us. Well, that's all I have for this morning. I realized that, um, that it was conclusion enough to say that we're going to continue on next week as we continue to think about the Gospel of Matthew and the importance of forgiveness and its centrality in the life of the church. Um, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.